Um, if you need a lesson, raise your hand. Uh, lesson we're going to look at is history. Uh, let everybody in and uh, get everybody comfortable while they're coming in. A uh, couple of matters. Uh, a lot of you have been praying for us in our trial. Thank you very much. We had uh, two clients, and contrary to what you read in the media, we actually uh, won one and lost one. And uh, uh, it, uh, it's been wonderful. We're still fighting. We're now fighting for the punitive damage stage. And I'll give that closing argument uh, tomorrow morning in New Jersey and then actually come home and be done. Um, it's, been, uh, it's been a wonderful lesson. It's been a great lesson in uh, uh, a number of different areas that I'd be glad to talk to you all about sometime when uh, we have an opportunity. Uh, one of the things that happened this week is we were getting ready to give closing argument the Merck lawyers filed a, a motion with the judge, and uh, 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 we, we have two clients, but we were principally in charge of both <laughs> uh, um, on, on uh, uh, probably 80% of the issues. And uh, uh, so I had to give the closing argument for both clients and, uh, 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 from a, a liability perspective. And the Merck lawyers filed a motion with the court asking the court not to allow me to do certain things. Evidently, they'd read a lot of my transcripts in the past, and they thought some things were out of order. And um, uh, so the judge is looking at it. The judge says, well, I don't really see anything wrong with most of this stuff. And, and I said, well, judge, if it makes you feel any better, some of it I'm not going to do anyway. And the judge said, well, like, what are you not going to do? I said, well, one of the things they asked me not to do is to quote scripture. And uh, uh, I said, I, I won't quote scripture. We'll try and keep the court as pagan as we can. <laughs> I said, but I, I, and judge says, well, I don't think there's anything really wrong with you quoting scripture. I said, I don't either. But I said, uh, I, don't I don't anticipate doing it. At least if I do, I'll, you know, not give credit to God for it. I'll just say it. <laughs> I said, um, I said, but I couldn't help but read the case that they had because they cited a case here and I had problems with the case. And she said, what do you mean? And the way the law is written, judges in America uh, on the trial level, they administer the law. But there are appellate judges who write opinions of what the law is. And so you can go to the bookshelves and read these opinions and, and the lower trial judges have to follow the law as written by the appellate judges. So I said, I read this opinion that, they're tell that the bad guys are telling you to follow. And the opinion calls down a lawyer for something the lawyer said in closing argument. And what the lawyer had said is, is he had told the jury, how would you feel if it had been you? And that's uh, called the golden rule violation in law in a trial. And, and we have the same rule here. And so it's a rule I knew and I wouldn't have violated. Um, but it, you're not allowed to say to a jury, uh, how would you feel if it had been you? Because that's asking the juror to the golden rule is to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And so the, the argument is, is that you can't put the jurors in the shoes of the, the victim, okay? <clears throat> so I, I said, uh, Judge, I read this opinion. And the judge says, uh, well, don't y'all have that same rule in Texas? I said, yes, yes, and I'm not arguing about the rule. I just thought it interesting your appellate judges, because there are three judges that wrote the opinion, all said... This is based upon the Old Testament teaching, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I said, I just would like the court to know that's actually in the New Testament. Maybe if y'all would let lawyers quote scripture, your appellate judges could get it right. <laughs> so the judge laughed. Um, <clears throat> two other matters. 
Uh, Debbie Riddle, in a week or two, or uh, we don't have class next week because it's Easter. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll start putting together some information. Uh, save your money up. I think we're going to try and do another Israel trip around Sukkot again this year, which is October-ish. Uh, so as a class, if y'all want to go, uh, uh, start uh, saving money and, and uh, see if it's something that might be prayerful about it. See if it might work for you. If you've got birthdays or holidays coming up, then uh, tell everybody, hey, put money into a kitty because that would be a good treat for a trip. Uh, next thing, um, <clears throat> I got handed this on the way in by Ellen, and then I got handed a note from someone else. Please comment on the newly publicized Gospel of Judas. Have you all heard about the Gospel of Judas? Um, you know, uh, uh, this casts Jewish, Judas as a hero, saying he was doing good things for Jesus. Of course, Dr. Bob said if that was legitimate, why did he go hang himself? Um, but uh, uh, I thought that was pretty insightful. Um, I will say this. <clears throat> this class... This class, perhaps more so right now than any other group assembled in a class, in Houston, Texas at least, is able to understand the gospel of uh, Judas. Um, let me tell you why. You have in your biblical litera history, church history literacy training, you have the tools it takes to understand what this is. If you were here, was anybody here um, uh, for our Gnostic classes? We spent two weeks on Gnosticism. I said it was a huge problem from the first, uh, second century, around 100, eh, late first century, the 90s, up through about three or 400 A.D. It was a major heresy within the church. And we talked about Irenaeus, who wrote against Gnosticism. And one of our classes really focused on him. And I'd urge you to either get those lessons out or if you didn't keep them, email us and we'll get you another copy. Because what the Gnostics taught, if you recall, was this idea that in each one of them, had there, there were like hundreds of kinds of branches of Gnosticism, but each one basically said material, physical matter things are evil. The spiritual, what you can know, you know, knowledge, Remember all of this? That's the good stuff, the spiritual stuff. And uh, uh, Jesus, so for example, in, in one kind of Gnosticism, was the spirit that flew down in the dove on the man Jesus at the baptism. And then right before the crucifixion, he left and watched it from a nearby hill. Okay, because the good Christ that would teach us how to get home to our ethereal, uh, eons away God... Is, was spirit only, all right? Or another branch of Gnosticism said, uh, you know, we're all enslaved within these bodies and, and uh, uh, when we die, our souls are released and there are secret passwords to make it through all of the different ruling deities as we get home to God. And if you come to me, I've got the secret knowledge and I'll tell you all the secrets. Sometimes it costs... But hey, what are you going to do with your money anyway? All right, so this was crass commercialism mixed in with some mysticism. And who doesn't want to be on the cutting edge and know the true secrets of Jesus? This was at a time where the Bible itself wasn't published, though the apostolic writings were. So Irenaeus wrote against these heresies around 175 A.D., 
And while we looked at what he had to say on Gnosticism in general, and we looked at what he had to say on Marcion, for example, and on Valentinius, which were principal schools of Gnosticism, we studied those in this class. I did not tell you that he also wrote about the Gospel of Judas. In the Gospel of Judas, he doesn't go into any great detail. He just says there's also another heretical writing out there called the Gospel of Judas, which we know is fake. We know it was written by these Gnostic groups, and it's got no trustworthiness at all. Another writing from Irenaeus is one uh, proof of the apostolic preaching, where he actually goes through and says, here's how we know this is what the apostles were teaching. Okay? Now, the Gospel of Judas was unknown except for that reference in Irenaeus until the 1970s when a copy was found in Egypt. In the southern part of Egypt, in the dry desert climate, a lot of Gnostic communities formed. And, and there were Gnostic communities all over the known world, but down there, when they would do their writings, because of the climate, a lot of those writings survived. So a lot of the Gnostic writings we have have actually come out of Egypt. And uh, um, in the 1970s, this Gospel of Judas came to light. And scholars have known about it since, but a new translation's coming out. And that's why it's hit the media all of a sudden. It sounds really new. But what the Gospel of Judas says, it was written by Gnostics, probably written about 150 or so A.D., which also tells you it wasn't Judas, because unless he's about 150 years old, and he didn't survive his hanging, okay? <clears throat> so... Unless Clint Eastwood was there to like, choo, the rope right when he was going down. If you remember that movie. Um, wasn't that the good, the bad, and the ugly? Or was it a fistful of dollars? It's one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all missed the whoa, whoa, whoa over here. Um, Anyway, uh, uh, what the Gospel of Judas is, is it's just another Gnostic writing. It's a classic Gnostic writing. It's got all of the elements of Gnosticism. It says, here is a secret that most people don't know. It's our secret knowledge, hence Gnosticism. And here's our secret knowledge. And what it is, is Judas was the only one of the apostles that really got the message from Jesus. That's why all of the other apostles' teachings are false. That's why all of the basic church stuff you hear about is false. That's why we alone have the true illumination. And it turns out Judas was Jesus' best friend. And Jesus brought Judas to him and said, Hey, I need you to do me a favor. I want you to turn me in. Because if, which by the way doesn't make logical sense to me, if you want to get turned in... You just turn yourself in. But anyway, he says to Judas, I want you to turn me in so they can kill me and that will release my spirit from this bondage of the tomb of my body so that I can be free at last. Okay? That's just classic Gnostic stuff. It's nothing new. It doesn't change Christianity and it doesn't change history. Okay? But y'all are prepared to read and understand. When you're reading this, you know, Ellen told me, she says, I was reading this and I thought, hey, I know some of this kind of stuff. And uh, so pull your lessons back out and uh, uh, don't let that uh, fret you. In fact, use that as an opportunity to say to someone, hey, why don't you come to my Sunday school class? We talk about this stuff all the time. Man, we were beating the Gospel of Judas out by weeks. <clears throat> 
Y'all ready to talk about Easter? Okay, let's talk about Easter. What we've been doing, if you're visiting, what we've been doing in this class is going through church history kind of chronologically. But we're going to pause since this is Palm Sunday and next week is Easter and we won't be in class on Easter. We're going to kind of pause in chronology to really zoom in on Easter as a subject. It'll also be fun to do when we get near Christmas time to zoom in on Christmas as a subject. But right now, I want to talk to you about Easter. Now, I say the word Easter. We're in church, I recognize. But what do you think? What are your memories of Easter? You know, um, do you think about eggs? Do you think about the Easter bunny? Do you think about bunnies and chicks and eggs? Do you think about little kids and the fun of little kids? Maybe we have a horticulturalist here who thinks about Easter lilies. How about uh, Easter clothes when you were growing up? How many of you got new Easter outfits for church, yeah? Okay, and then of course we are in church, so we have the devout question of Easter as well. Let me start by asking you this. Is Easter anywhere in the Bible? The answer is, if you look for the word Easter, no, unless you're reading the King James Version. And in the old King James Version, originally published, I guess, in like 1611, the old King James Version in Acts chapter 12, verse 4, uses the word Easter. It says, And when he apprehended Peter, he put him in prison, intending after Easter to bring him forth. Okay, that's, a, that's an error. <laughs> that's a bad translation. That's not the word Easter. All right? The word Easter is not in there. Uh, the King James has kept that up. I don't know why, I guess out of tradition, but it is a mistake in the translation itself. We'll explore why as we go through the lesson. I think we need to start understanding Easter where the origins of our celebration began. And the origins began in the Old Testament. So we're going to go back in time. We're going to get the biblical grasp of what Easter was as we get into the flow of church history. If we, if we don't start at the beginning, we don't really get into the current where we need to be to, to ride it for all it's worth. So let's go to the Old Testament. Now, we have a, a, a weird society. No, that's not the right way to say it. Our civilization is different today than civilization was until three or four hundred years ago. How many of you have some type of a calendar you keep? Okay. And is it typically kept by month or week or day? Okay. All right. If you go back to before the Industrial Revolution, let's go back to before the 1700s, most people didn't keep a calendar like that. The calendar as we know it, most people did not live by. The concern of most people were seasons more than anything else. Before the Industrial Revolution, when people made their living and sustained life basically off of farming, the most important things were the seasons. From the Middle Ages on, people lived specifically by the church calendar more than they did anything else. The church calendar was something that gave them the season of Advent. That's the birth of Christ and, and, and those events. Then the church calendar gave them the Easter season, which would include Lent and include the time after Easter up to Pentecost, which is 50 days after Easter. Lent starts 40 days before. Um, and, and, and folks would live with an understanding of the church calendar more so than anything else. 
Was there another calendar? Yes, but the church calendar held the sway. Now, if we go back to Israel's past in the Old Testament, Israel had how many calendars? They had two. Okay? Israel had two calendars. First calendar they had was their basic civil calendar. And that's just for the administration of government and civil things. And, and it had standard months, okay? And it had days. It was a lunar calendar. It's based on a 28-day cycle, the cycle of the moon. All right? Now, Israel had a civil calendar, which when you read about the kings and all, they follow the civil calendar real, real well in Israel. But Israel had more than a civil calendar. They also had a religious calendar. And the religious calendar came about because of a story that's recorded for us. This is religious we're focusing on. A story that's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 12. The story involves principal guys, Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. <laughs> and that woman, oh, Moses, Moses. I don't remember who played her, but I remember Charlton Heston as Pharaoh. And, I mean, Charlton Heston was Moses, Yul Brenner as Pharaoh. Um, uh, and I don't, I've always thought Charlton Heston probably had the voiceover for God, too, because the voice just sounded like him. I've never looked at the credits to see. I'd love to know. But in Exodus chapter 12, Moses has gone to see Pharaoh a couple of times, and Pharaoh's just not being real good about letting the people go. So finally, God comes to Moses in Exodus chapter 12 and says, Okay, we're about to get there. This is the way it's going down. I want you, first of all, mark it. The 10th day of Nisan, which is the month that they're in. Nisan the 10th. I want you to go tell every household, every male in every household, to go get a spotless lamb. Okay? They're going to go get a spotless lamb, and what they're going to do is they're going to slay that lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood, blah, 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 and, and the story goes on. And we're going to get to the story in more detail in a minute, but I want to couch it for you here. Because God says to, to Moses, he says, and this is going to be significant, the 14th day of Nisan is when you're going to get all of this stuff done. And on the 14th day of Nisan, from here on out, that's going to be the first day of your calendar. It's going to be the first day of your year. Not in a civil sense, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, always comes in the civil sense. In, it's like September or something like that, I don't know, but it's like in the fall. But this is a, a springtime event, and God says we're going to have a religious calendar too, and in the religious sense, this is where it all starts. This is the beginning. This is the first day. Jews didn't understand this, most of them. Christian Jews did. Because God's prophesying here. God's not just prophesying about what would happen in Jesus, but he's setting it up so that it's acted out by the Jews and experienced by the Jews, not only in that day, but in every generation, so that they would recognize and see Messiah for who he was. So what God says is, for our purposes, you need to see this as the first day of the first month, even though it's in the middle of your year. Because something new is happening here. So on Nisan the 10th, 
You see, God gives this word to Moses for the 14th of Nisan is the critical day. The lamb has to be a male lamb. Can't be female. The lamb has to be spotless, pure, white, unblemished. Okay? And this lamb is to be sacrificed to help in the deliverance of the people from the bondage, the slavery that they had in Egypt. All right? After the animal is sacrificed, the blood of the animal is to be taken, and what do they do with it? They surround the door of every house with the blood from the sacrificed lamb. And the reason why is because the spirit of death is going to pass by and kill the firstborn of every household in Egypt except those houses covered in blood. If there's a house where the door, which is how you go in and go out, it is the recognition of each house. If the door has the blood of the sacrificed male, pure lamb on it, then those houses will be spared not only from death, but those are the homes of the people who will be brought from slavery into the promised land. And that's what you have. And so on the 14th, the angel of death passed over the Jewish homes. And the word for Passover in Hebrew is Pesach. And if you were to go to a Jewish home to celebrate Pesach or, have, or, or Passover, they have a Haggadah, which is the, the service, the Seder service that they read. They have very clear instructions of everything they do. And there's a cup of wine, actually multiple cups of wine. There are several pieces of bread, unleavened bread. And, and, and this is to celebrate because God told Moses, not only are you going to do this, but this is a day you're to commemorate for the generations to come. You'll celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This is a celebration, God says, that is for time immortal. And the Jews are to teach their children about it. In fact, in a, in a Passover service, a child always asks the question, why do we do this? And the explanation is given. We were slaves in a foreign land, and God, bum, 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 and it's laid out. And this is how the Exodus begins. And the Israelites move through the Red Sea, and they go forward into a new covenant relationship with God. And they come into the promised land and his deliverance. Now, the Passover was to be celebrated and was celebrated by uh, uh, devout Jews easily through the time of Christ. It's not to say the Jews during generations and maybe even longer didn't lose track and, and, and lost track of the law and what they were supposed to be doing. We know that that did happen and we know that the law would be rediscovered and, and, and the Jews would, would come back to conviction of what God wanted them to do. But in the time of Christ, this is still happening. In the time of Christ, we know Christ celebrated the Pesca. Now we're going to change it to Pesca instead of Pesach. Pesach was Hebrew... By the time of Christ, while they still read some Hebrew, their language had kind of evolved a little bit. They called it Aramaic. 
And it was, it was kind of like, um, I, I've been up in New Jersey, and I've, I, the judge actually, you know, the first two or three weeks, it was you guys, you guys, you guys. About four weeks into trial, the judge looked out and said, y'all. She <laughs> caught herself. And I said, I stood up and I said, Your Honor, I said, uh, that felt real good. <laughs> she says, I don't know what come over me. You know, language kind of evolves a little bit. We've got a higher level of language here than they do up north. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's what happens. So Pesach becomes Pesca. And we've got, the, when, when the New Testament writers write about it, they just took the Hebrew and changed, I mean the Aramaic, and changed the letters into Greek letters so that it sounds the same. So it's a made-up Greek word, pescha, because it's just the, pescha is just the, the, the word for, for the Hebrew word. It means Passover. Christ celebrated the Passover. I mean, this is what Leonardo da Vinci painted on the wall of that church in Milan, Italy. You go into the church in Milan, there's this big old wall. It's got this huge painting of Christ and his apostles. And it was at the Passover where Jesus said to his apostles, you know, first he said, go into the city. There's a certain house where we're going to celebrate this. And I'll tell you who the certain guy is. And you go find him and say, hey, we're here to get it ready. You get the Passover ready and we're coming in. But it was at the Passover that Jesus held up the cup of wine and said, this wine is my blood that's shed for you. Do this Passover in remembrance of me. Of course, the apostles, they don't have a clue what's going on. I mean, they, they really are clueless until the Holy Spirit comes and enlightens them on Pentecost. But, but you know, they're, they're sitting there, hey, I don't know where you're going, but we're going with you. And he says, no, you really can't do that. Oh, yes, we can. And Peter, I'm going with you. He says, no, you're denying me three times. I am not. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and so that's going on here. Jesus holds up the afikomen, which in the, 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 the Hebrew Passover service is the piece of bread that celebrates the Messiah coming one day. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat of this in remembrance of me. Because the apostles didn't understand it, but it couldn't be any clearer if Leonardo had painted it on the wall of the upper room where they were. The Passover was a symbol of our redemption in Jesus Christ. We're all bound in, as slaves to sin. If there is anybody in here that does not think that sin holds control over part of their lives, they're deluded. And Jesus Christ says, I will set you free from sin, but it's not as easy as just performing miracles. Turning the Nile into blood, bringing on the grasshoppers and the frogs and the flies, bring, hailing uh, fire storm. That doesn't do it. As miraculous as those are, you want freedom from your sin and its bondage and slavery over you, it's going to take the sacrifice of an unblemished male lamb. And Jesus says the Passover lamb fulfills both sides of it because he's not only the lamb whose blood covers us 
and causes us to have a new life, a new calendar, a new day. When you embrace Jesus Christ, it is the first new day of the rest of your life. Like none other. And for the rest of your life, you remember, on this day, I started all over again. And it doesn't matter if it's in the start of the year or the middle of the year or the end of the year because it is our calendar where we can look back and say, at this point in history, God passed over. By the blood of Jesus Christ, I was born again. That's, that's the Pesca. That's Jesus saying, I'm the lamb. But Jesus fulfilled both sides of it. He not only was the lamb that was slain, he not only was the blood over the doors, but he was also the firstborn that died throughout Egypt to bring the redemption. See, we got passed over for death, but the Egyptians did not. It took the death of the firstborn in every household before Pharaoh would come forward and say, leave. And Jesus not only was the lamb that protected us, but he was the firstborn of God who died to give the, the release. Christ is the Pesca. And, and, and he says, in, in, uh, God says in Exodus, this is a day to you to commemorate for the generations to come. You'll celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance, because it was Jesus Christ, and he wanted everyone to know it was Jesus Christ, and for eternity that festival is in place. For eternity, because the Pesca has been done. And we as the children of God have been liberated from sin when we embrace that Pesca, the sacrifice, the Passover. We've been liberated and we're brought through the waters of baptism as a symbol into the promised land where we dwell forever. But with Jesus Christ, the Pesca story did not end with the death of the Lamb. Paul Harvey would say, we need the rest of the story. Because the lamb not only was slain, but the lamb that was slain was Messiah, God. And God goes in death, but he breaks the chains of death because death cannot hold God. And the tomb on Easter morning was empty because Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, our Savior, was risen. He's risen indeed. Now... The Pesca is the Passover. And if we were to go in other languages outside of English and say, in French, I can't pronounce French worth anything, but the, the Easter is not called Easter outside of English, except to the extent our language has started pervading the world with our, our uh, economic and military dominance and cultural dominance in a lot of ways. And, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way because some of it's very shameful, but, but I, I'm just saying that... that English is, is pervading other cultures right now. So other cultures grab hold of a lot of our language like Easter. But Easter is an English, Anglo-Saxon word. In other languages, the word for, for what we call Easter is much closer to Pesca because that's what it was in the original. And so the Pesca is the Passover. And if we go to the Pesca as the Passover, look back now... Uh, uh, at what we had in Acts 12 in the King James. And when he apprehended Peter, he put him in prison, intending after Easter to bring him forth. What the Greek actually reads there is intending after Pesca to bring him forth. Pesca is throughout the New Testament, 
throughout the New Testament. And so if you go to a New International Version, it'll have this same verse. Arresting him, Peter, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. See, that's the right translation. So how did our Easter services get to what they are today? And how did our Easter get where it is today? That's the biblical roots. Let's look at how it was, was uh, 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 transformed into where we are today through the early church. The early church celebration at first was a weekly celebration. The early church was a messianic apocalyptic movement is what theologians would say. And what they mean by that is the early church thought Jesus was coming back any day now. It might be today. I mean, at first, they never dreamed when he says, okay, stay here, I'm sending the Holy Spirit until I come back. But you'll see the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory. They're thinking, okay, great, we'll see it. And so, so the, uh, uh, in this lifetime, in their lifetime. So they're all expecting to see Jesus coming back any minute. They're not sitting there saying, gee, we need to mark this with a yearly celebration. Because they, they're not thinking yearly. They were probably stunned if you had put, laid a wager down and said, how long do you think till Messiah comes back? I'll bet you the odds are... Man, I've been in Atlantic City too long. Now I'm talking about gambling on the Word of God. Um, <laughs> the odds on this one are three to one. Um, you know, if you had asked someone, they would have said, I think he's coming back pretty... I think it's this week. No, I don't think it's this week. I think it's going to be this month, though. But they, the, so, so what the church did in celebration of Jesus and in recognition and homage to Jesus is celebrated on a weekly basis. And every Sunday was the Lord's Day. Now Sunday, Justin would tell us from the Latin, is got uh, 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 dies solis. Dies means day in Latin. Solis is sun. S-U-N. Not like I have a kid, but like... Oh, gee, the sun, okay? Sun day, a day named after the god Jupiter, I might add. Um, Sunday is what we call it because we've inherited this Roman vocabulary, this Latin vocabulary, but the New Testament church called it the first day of the week. Okay? And so we could go to Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week... Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income and get it all together so that when I come, you can give it to me and I can take it in mass and give it to the church in Jerusalem. See, on the first day of the week. And so the church originally has a weekly celebration with the first day of each week. Um, you know, by the time we get to the book of Revelation, which is 95 AD, 35 years or so after Paul's through writing, it's now being called by John the Lord's Day. Because John writes in Revelation 1.10, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. So these are where these words come from. First day of the week, the Lord's day. And this is where the early church was celebrating. By the time you get into the 100s, there's a writing called the Epistle of Barnabas that we'll look at in a few weeks probably. Um, the Epistle of Barnabas, which is written somewhere around 100 to 130 A.D., calls it the eighth day because you've got seven days of the week. And, and they wanted to emphasize it's the eighth day, the beginning of another world. Because after Jesus Christ was resurrected, a whole new world began. And they recognized it even, even then in the early church. So the early church has first a weekly celebration. But 
as the church starts to get a longer time perspective and, and, and weeks go by and months go by and years go by and the Messiah has not come, you've got an early church of Jews who are still participating in some Jewish ceremonies but understanding the Passover, the Pascha. They're understanding it as a Christian ceremony and it's starting to occur to them what all was going on. And you see this weekly celebration start to turn into an annual celebration. And we don't really read about it in the Bible, but it makes really good sense and it's about the only logical conclusion you can come through as you read through the early history of it. Peter talks about how uh, the church, toward the end of Peter's life, he wrote 2 Peter in the 60s, mid-60s A.D. And, and he writes and he says, don't forget, you know, the Lord's not slow in His promise. That's not why He hadn't come yet. He's patient. He wants everyone to come to a knowledge of God. And the day of the Lord is still coming. And when it comes, it's going to come like a thief. So Peter's saying, don't quit thinking God's coming back, but recognize it may not be as quick as you thought. That's when he says, a day with God's like a thousand years. So you know, get comfortable, but don't get lazy. He may come back tomorrow, but don't think he's just slow. So this is what happens with the church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover, he uses the word Pascha, lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, but don't keep the festival just the way the Jews are. You keep it with sincerity and truth. Christ is our Pascha. You don't go buy you a Passover lamb and get him slain anymore. We in the church have ours. It's Jesus Christ. And this is the way the early church celebrated. So what's first is a weekly service that's on Sunday or the first day of the week grows into a Pascha service on the 14th of Nisan. Okay? Now, do you know what this is up here? This is the roots of a huge problem in the church. Ooh, we got a cruise. All right, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this problem, but I want to show it to you because it just shows you how um, messed up churches can be sometimes and what they fuss about. Right there is the start of a huge church controversy. Do you know why? This is called mega problem. It's not just a minor thing. This is a mega problem right here. Weekly celebration, you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on a Sunday. That's the day he was resurrected, right? 14th of Nisan, that's that Jewish holiday, Passover. It's done by the moon cycle. It falls on a Sunday about once every seven years. So churches who celebrate Easter on the 14th of Nisan as Pascha, whoa. They're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on a different day than the Lord's Day. So part of the church, in fact, did I do this right? Um, which way would be east? That would be east. Yes, I did this right. It's lucky. I didn't plan on it. The eastern church, which is this side of the screen, okay? The eastern church celebrates Easter on the 14th of Nisan because it's Pascha. I should quit saying Easter. They don't have that word. It's Pascha. They're going to celebrate the Passover on the Passover. They're going to celebrate the resurrection and, Easter, uh, and, and the Pascha on the resurrection day. Okay? Meanwhile, the Western church, which includes Rome and Alexandria, Egypt, and maybe even some of Palestine, the Western church is saying, oh, that's horrible. You let the Jews conquer the church when the church was supposed to conquer the Jews. 
Jesus was risen on the Lord's day. It's His day. We call it His day. And we celebrate Easter on the first Sunday after Nissan, 14th. 14 in Latin is quattro desa something. Right? Quattro desa, quattro four desa is ten. Okay, Justin, don't laugh loud. So, I can tell you this. The movement over on this side of the screen was called, appropriately, Quattrodeciminianism, which means Latin for people of the 14th. And the church on this side decides they're going to disfellowship the church on that side. Because, you know, you're supposed to fast leading up to this. These guys are ending their fast two days before these guys over here. These guys are walking around rejoicing Jesus Christ is risen indeed, while these guys over here are mourning the fact that Jesus Christ is dead. And they see these guys. And I mean, it's a huge problem. And so the bishop of the Roman church, Bishop Victor in the 190s, decides, I'm going to write a letter and I'm disfellowshipping all of those churches over there in the east. And I'm going to get all the churches with me. And we're just going to kick them out because they can't get Easter right. And uh, Polycrates, who's the bishop of Smyrna, comes and he writes a letter to to, uh, the bishop, Victor, and he says... We observe the exact day, we don't add, we don't round up, and we don't round down. In Asia, also, you know, the Roman church was big about saying, hey, Peter and Paul died here, y'all need to listen to us. He says, hey, we got great lights that have fallen asleep, died, in Asia too, which will rise again on the day of the Lord's coming. We'll come with glory from heaven and seek out all of his saints. Of these, we got Philip, one of the twelve apostles. We got his three daughters. And moreover, we have John, who reclined on the Lord's bosom, and it was a witness and a teacher. He fell asleep at Ephesus. And we got Polycarp. You all remember Polycarp. We studied his martyrdom in here. Polycarp in Smyrna, a bishop and a martyr. All these observed the 14th day of the Pascha according to the gospel, deviating in no respect, but following the rule of faith. And if you think you're going to get us to do something different than the Apostle John did, you're crazy. All right, so here's my question for you. When is Easter? (laughs) Well, you want to go by the sun? Pope Gregory the 13th in 1582 put the Gregorian calendar together. That's what we have now. It works pretty well. It's just off a day ever... 1,300 years, okay? Um, or you want to do the Jewish calendar, which is by the moon. And it's got all these other things because it's, it's off a pretty good bit. And technically, we're now scientific people in the 21st century, and we know that what we mean by year is when is the earth in the exact same position relative to the sun as it was last time it was here? That's what we mean by year. They were more concerned about planting cycles back then. So as science has grown, our precision has grown. And there are elaborate formulas for determining when Easter is, and it just depends upon which formula you want to follow. The Roman church has a formula. The Eastern church has a formula. Other churches have formulas. Or you could just say, hey, I'm going Jewish, man. Give me Nissan. I'll go 14th of Nissan. Or I'll just do, I'll go back to the old time. Give me the Sunday afterwards. What about the days around... All right, new subject. We have five minutes to do Easter trivia, okay? 
Days around Pascha, what about them? In up to 100, they would celebrate Pascha, the Passover itself. From 100 to 200, they would celebrate Pascha, but they would also celebrate the whole week before Pascha, starting with Palm Sunday, which is what we have today. It's Palm Sunday because it's the day Jesus went into Jerusalem riding on the colt, on the foal, on the donkey. And, and according to John's gospel, the, the leaves being placed down included palm leaves. As the people cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, son of David. Hosanna in the highest. All right? Now, so Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday. So that's a time of celebrating Jesus coming in, the start of, of Holy Week. Then Friday is, is always significant. Friday's Good Friday. That's the day of the crucifixion. It's a day of mourning. It's a day of, of penance. It's a day of recognizing that sin is so serious, our sin is so serious, that God had to come in the form of man and pay a penalty for us. It's a time of great devotion and it's a time of great silence, uh, 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 of great focus on sin and, and our shortcomings and the death of Christ. And then Saturday in the early church was the baptism day. Saturday they would baptize and then the newly baptized would get the new clothes to wear on Sunday, the white garment. And uh, that was the way the church celebrated in the second hundred years. Fasting was very important during this time period. There would be fasting to focus on sin and to focus attention, especially on Good Friday. The fasting was there. Now the fasting started growing. Some people would fast for a day. Some would fast for two days. The really devout would fast for 40 hours, 40 being significant because that was the same, 40 was the number that Jesus was in the wilderness, right? Except he was actually there 40 days. And then they thought, well, why don't we fast for 40 days? So they started fasting for 40 days. Now, it wouldn't be a complete fast because uh, you'd have trouble making it, but it was still a term to fast. And what they would do is they would fast 40 days. You'd get a light meal at night. But that light meal couldn't include any meat, couldn't include fish, could not include uh, dairy products or any eggs or things like that that come from animals. And that would be a 40-day fast as you prepared your, your hearts and your minds and really focused during that time on how serious sin is and how detestable to God it is. So the fasting was very important. By the time you get into the 300s, this process, which we call Lent from an Anglo-Saxon word, was set up at 40 days. That was the Council of Nicaea in 325, actually put it in as one of the canons. And by the mid-300s, it was almost mandatory. But as time went on, the, the Catholic Church kind of freed up some on that. So that on Fridays, uh, um, well, the, the Friday don't eat meat rule was one that started applying to the whole year to remember it out of Good Friday. You could have fish, though. And as I mentioned last week, that's why in 1962, McDonald's added the filet of fish sandwich because their sales would flag so significantly on Fridays. But also from 1962 to 65, more trivia here. This is kind of rambling, sorry. That's when the Second Vatican Council said, okay, it's not as mandatory now. You can kind of lighten up some on this. But uh, uh, during this time period, Lent was there, and Lent would start on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, which meant on Tuesday you had to get rid of all the dairy products and all the good stuff you had in your kitchen because you're not going to be able to use it, right? Fat Tuesday. Mardi Gras, that's where it comes from, carnival. In, in England, it's called Pancake Day because cooks will tell you that's how pancakes were invented. It was a way to dump in your dairy ingredients and all of your sweet things and everything and get rid of everything in your kitchen. So that's called Pancake Day in England. Okay, that's things you learn. Now, here's my question for you. Okay, we got, we got two minutes. Can y'all, well, actually, we're almost out. Can y'all bear with me and let me give you, okay, three minutes of trivia. Let's just run through this real quick. Is it Pascha 
Or is it Easter? Pascha. Now, you can say Easter, and we've been saying Easter since at least the 700s in Anglo-Saxon. But do you know who she is? She's Easter. Yeah. Easter. She's the Anglo-Saxon. She also went by Ostara or Esther, but she was the Anglo-Saxon goddess of springtime. Also associated with rabbits because they're pretty fertile. And spring is when things fertile start coming out. So we get the word from that. Now, I'm not saying, oh, great, now we're celebrating a pagan holiday. We've got to get rid of Easter. No, the only reason we even know that that was the pagan holiday that was then is because a, a writer of church history named Bede the Venerable, also known as Bede the Obscure, um, uh, in the 700s wrote this up. Okay. Other than that, I mean, it's the church who saved knowledge of the pagan tradition. Um, uh, that's where the bunnies come from, by the way. The Easter lily, it's beautiful, isn't it? Brought to the United States in 1882 from Japan. Doesn't have a thing to do with Easter, except it really looks pretty. And people have figured out all these ways that it kind of relates to lilies. And, and Jesus was, uh, consider the lily of the fields, how they grow. And so it's something that a lily is easily associated with Christ and, and his passion. Um, the bunny rabbit, uh, again, uh, that comes, I don't know where we hide eggs from. Eggs themselves have been associated with Christ for a long time. So that's a fitting thing because the shell on the outside is, breaks through and new life comes out. And so we've got good historic origins for that. The Easter clothes, because of the baptism. There's an old Irish saying that dates back into within four or five hundred years after the church started. Uh, for Christmas, food and drink. For Easter, new clothes. An old Irish saying, here are your points for home. Christ, our Passover lamb, was slain on our behalf to free us from sin's bondage. And we embrace him in a new life. 1 Corinthians 5, Dale threw out some good scriptures to help me with this this week. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We need to spend some time. And this is something we lose in some Protestant churches. The Catholics have this one on us. And, and some of the more higher churches have this on us, the Episcopalians. We lose sometimes because I don't think we have a set-aside time to truly contemplate the life, suffering, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I think it's something we need to do. I think it's something we, we lose on when we don't. Because we honor Him as Savior and Lord. And when we do this, we're not just doing it because of what it means today. We've got a promised land that He's taken us to. You see, this is our hope. This is our confidence. This is why when life stinks, we can get up and smile anyway. This is why when stuff goes wrong, we can have joy in our heart. Okay? Now, lovingly, don't smash anybody over the head. Use your Easter trivia this week. Find people at work. Find people at play. Find people in the grocery store. Ask them, hey, you know where the word Easter comes from? Or, hey, how's your pesca? <laughs> Whatever you want to do. Use it. It's a wonderful way to engage people in a little sharing time. Pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the Passover lamb. I bless the, all of the people in this room, Lord, through Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that the blood of the lamb will be over not just them, but over their homes, that all in the households of, of my friends and family here will be saved will understand what it is to embrace the pesca, the, the sacrifice, the lamb, Jesus Christ, who is slain, time immortal, who sits at your right hand, who welcomes us home. We love and adore you. 
We grieve the fact that our sin cost you so much. We grieve the fact that we still relish in it so often because our heart and our devotion is towards you, Father. Through Jesus we pray, amen.